When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. Throughout this episode of Firebug, you'll hear dramatic recreations of courtroom testimony taken from trial transcripts. October 10th, 1984. A warm fall night in South Pasadena, California. The San Diego Padres are beating the Detroit Tigers in Game 2 of the World Series. But at the Ole's home center on Fair Oaks Boulevard, dozens of firefighters are losing ground. First arriving units found that fire was fully involved inside the uh, west side of the Ole's store. That section of the Ole's does have all of the paints and flammable liquids in it. That would account for the heavy damage that's inside. That's correct. By dawn, smoldering rubble sits where the hardware store once stood. Finally, the bodies of four people are found. Two young Oli's employees, plus a grandmother and her two-year-old grandson. We were called last night and told us he was trapped in there. He was dead. Arson investigators for the sheriff's office call it an accident, likely caused by an electrical problem in the attic. In the aftermath, the rubble is cleared, Funerals held. Insurance companies pay out millions of dollars in damages to the victims' families. Eventually, a new hardware store is built on the site of the old one. And for several years, life goes on. And then, shocking news. In California tonight, a bizarre ending to an arson mystery that's been going on for years. David Dow reports... John Orr, one of the most well-known arson investigators in the state, was convicted of starting three fires around a conference of his peers in Fresno. Now he's serving a 30-year sentence for confessing to the unthinkable. Then he pleaded guilty to three more fires in Los Angeles, including one in a hardware store set in polyfoam. He still says he never set fires credited to him. None of them. None. Even the ones to which you pled guilty. I was forced into a plea agreement. Or would be eligible for parole in 10 years. It's unlikely that the families of the Oli's victims thought that this bizarre story had anything to do with them. Until 1994, when Deputy District Attorney Mike Cabral knocked on Kim and Matthew Troidel's door. The Troidels lost their two-year-old son, Matthew, and Kim Troidel's mother, Ada Deal, in the Oli's fire. I had a son that was about the same age. That's the thing that I remember most about preparing for the trial, is having to deal with the impact that it had on those two victims. 
Their life had already been turned upside down. We showed up there one day and turned it upside down again. At a press conference, Cabral announced the indictment, four counts of first-degree murder for the victims of the Oli's home center fire. I've spent the last uh, five years uh, prosecuting exclusively arson cases, and it's sad to um, see one of the fire service involved or even charged uh, with anything as serious as this. It's always very, very stressful when it's a homicide case because you've got this family that is relying on you to get them justice. We show up at their door saying, no, your child didn't die in an accident, it was a murder. And this trial was my time to prove that. I'm Carrie Antholis, and this is Firebug. Four people died in this fire, including a grandmother and her two-year-old grandson. The other two were employees of Oli's home center. Authorities say Orr used the fires as the basis for a novel about a fireman who was a serial arsonist. This was not a novel. This was not fiction. This was evidence. The LA County Sheriff's called it an accidental fire, and that was totally bogus, totally wrong. It was not an accidental fire. Chapter 7, The Trial. They housed him in the county jail during the trial. This is criminal defense attorney Ed Rucker. He represented John Orr. You go down there, along one side of the attorney room, there are these glass booths where you can see them through the, the glass. You can speak to someone over phones. Or seen a very uh, intelligent fellow, strong-willed, a stocky on the short side. If an arsonist, is, is there a stereotype of one? I mean, he certainly didn't meet that. Just sort of a, a regular looking fellow. Adamantly said he wasn't responsible for any of these arsons and that he had been pressured into pleading guilty to the three previous arsons. I had a couple months to put together a very complicated factual case. I had to become an arson investigator. Rucker had his work cut out for him because the most damning witness against his client was John Orr himself. Orr had written a novel, a fiction, about a serial arsonist who set a fire that was thinly veiled of the Oli's fire and saying that it was arson. Having him say it was arson, write a book about it, and having a history of setting arson fires, I had to come up with an explanation why this was not arson, that it was an electrical fire that started up in the attic. I thought that if I tried it right and got a couple breaks along the way, I might be able to raise 
a reasonable doubt on the Oli's fire. Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girlie? <laughs> Some peasant Coke? No. Or how does Sofia Vergara order a pizza? No, no, no tomatoes. I cannot eat tomatoes. No tomatoes? Yes. Are you killed mushrooms? Not really. Okay. <laughs> if these are the details you need, and I know you do, I have the podcast for you. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and on my podcast, Dinners on Me, I take some notable friends of mine out to dinners in Los Angeles and New York City. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. That thing was delicious. In the 1970s, John Todd burst onto the evangelical scene with a shocking tale. He claimed to be a former witch involved in a then unheard of secret organization called the Illuminati and urged Christians to prepare for a violent world takeover. First of all, the number one weapon in everybody's home should be a 12-gauge pump shotgun. Hear the amazing story of one of the originators of the modern-day conspiracy theory. From Magnificent Noise and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Cover Up, The Conspiracy Tapes. John Orr was a veteran firefighter, a respected arson investigator, and a captain with the Glendale, California Fire Department. Today, the 49-year-old is back in court, not only facing charges of arson, but also of murder. It's May 6, 1998, day one of the People versus John Leonard Orr. It's obviously quite a uh, undertaking to start a trial of this magnitude. Prosecutor Mike Cabral. The death of four people in a fire in a small town, but also, you know, the prosecution of a government employee who has peace officer status. So I'm a really big believer in, in trying to keep things simple at the beginning in opening statements. Just kind of set the scene for the various fires we were going to prove with the focus being on the Oles Home Center fire. In episode one, we took you through the night of the Oles fire from John Orr's perspective. At trial, Cabral laid out the prosecution's theory of what really happened. In the early evening hours of October 10th, I believe that John Orr started his evening at the Albertsons grocery store that had the potato chip fire. And it was a potato chip rack and smoked the whole store up. Potato chips burn readily. He then drove to Oli's, entered the store, uh, went to the polyfoam area, places his device in the four by eight sheets. He then exits through the front doors, uh, he gets in his car, drives the four or five blocks down to the Vaughn's store in South Pasadena, puts a cigarette match device into that potato chip rack. There was another fire in a potato chip rack a mile south at a Vaughn's market. Immediately exits the store, gets in his car, and returns to the Oli's home center. I got down to the Oli's building, and it was... Not a lot of fire showing at this time. A lot of smoke was coming out of it. He remains at Oli's, and as the fire companies arrive, he gets out of his car and begins to take pictures of the firefighters suppressing the fire. I stayed on the, uh, the Oli scene and took some photographs. 
he continues to take pictures rather than aid in the suppression activities. There was no hard evidence linking Orr to the Oli's fire, which was ultimately ruled accidental. To prove his case, Cabral would have to rely on the testimony of people who had been with Orr that night. He called California State Fire Marshal Jim Allen to the stand. For the first time I got to see John, it was just a very strange feeling to have somebody I worked with, drank with, ate with, spent several years working fires, and it was just an uncomfortable setting. You may remember from episode one that Alan and Orr investigated the Oli's fire together. In the courtroom, Cabral asked Alan to recall what they did that night. We were going down the various aisles working our way into an area that was building materials and hardware and approaching what I felt to be an area of origin. John was familiar with the inside of the building because he had apparently been there purchasing things and uh, said that was an area where the polyfoam was located. John was the only one that mentioned polyfoam. John was quite certain that this was a fire relating to all the other fires in Los Angeles County attributed to an unknown arsonist. And if the people in here have died as a result of it, then this is a homicide. But we could never prove it. Before they could take a closer look, the LA Sheriff's Department arrived and everyone was ordered out of the building. The lieutenant said, you've spent enough inside. I don't need your information. I don't want it. You're out of here. And you're not to go back in. The sheriffs brought in their own arson investigator, Sergeant Jack Palmer. Palmer pointed up to a black mark on the standing wall of the building and said, see that black mark up there on the wall? That indicates that the fire had come from the ceiling and therefore it's an accidental fire. And I said, that makes no sense at all. Prosecutor Mike Cabral called Jack Palmer to the stand. I was truly troubled by his investigation of this fire, which only took uh, a couple hours on the night of the incident. Sergeant Palmer, how long did you spend at the location before you made your determination? My first determination, I was probably there about an hour, hour and a half. And what determination did you reach? That I was unable to eliminate electrical shorting in the attic area. I wanted the jury to understand that we believe that he hadn't done everything he should have done. And to do that, Cabral asked Palmer about two other arson fires that had been set within hours of the Oli's fire. You were aware on that night that there were two other fires in the area and that those were both arson fires. Is that correct? Yes, they advised me of those. Those fires they told me were in stores, grocery stores, and were set in potato chip racks. It's highly unusual to have a fire inside an occupied building. We're showing the jury that, look, there's a fire at Ole's, there's a fire at an Albertson's, and there's a fire at Vaughn's all on the same night. Three fires within a few miles of each other on the same night 
seem to point to the work of a serial arsonist. But Palmer didn't agree. I mean, I considered the information, but as an investigator, I know what evidence I need. I know when I testify, I have to be sure in my mind that I have eliminated all accidental sources. You know, he didn't have the plans to the building. He only had talked to one employee, didn't have a conversation with anybody else who had been at the fire, how things went, what it looked like, where the fire burned. He had done none of that typical investigation we would want, especially when we have deaths, before reaching his conclusion that he couldn't determine the cause of the fire. And no one would ever get a chance to properly investigate the fire again. Somebody directed the bulldozer to go right into where we were working and smash every bit of it. If they had not done what they did, we would have known what started the fire and where. The whole fire was a screwed up operation courtesy of Los Angeles County Sheriff. Despite his investigation shortcomings, Sergeant Palmer stuck by his original determination, and that felt like a win for defense attorney Ed Rucker. He didn't determine it to be arson, and at that point, uh, I thought we were doing pretty good. Rucker called more witnesses to support Palmer's conclusions. Experts who had been in the field for years, whose word was highly respected as to the origin of fires. They said it was an accident. So I had those guys that I was going to pound and pound their opinions. But in the end, all his arguments couldn't stand up to one of the prosecution's witnesses. The biggest surprise for me was this, uh, an electrician who worked on the construction of the Oli's building. An electrician named Patrick Snyder. He'd personally inspected the attic back in the early 80s. He had been on a ladder up in the attic and saw that there was no electrical wires in the corner that I'm saying that the fire started. It's hard to disprove a, you know, a negative like that. There's no wires there. Well, are you sure? <laughs> you know. <laughs> oh yeah, I'm an electrician. And plus, he's a just a regular citizen. He doesn't have a dog in the fight. That testimony was supported by the building's blueprints. Through the drafting plans, I was able to show the jury that in fact most of the electrical in the building was in the floor, not in the attic. That hurt. I didn't think, oh my God, we're going to lose it. But that was a body blow. That really hurt. Prosecutor Mike Cabral had poked holes in the idea that the Oli's fire was an accident. But to win the case, he needed to prove that John Orr set the fire in polyphone. Two weeks after the fire, he approaches Karen Barry with the Glendale Police Department. Karen Barry was the sister-in-law of Carolyn Krauss, who died in the Oli's fire. Cabral called Barry to the stand. 
What, if anything, did the defendant say later to you concerning this fire? In discussing the investigation, he was somewhat disappointed and upset because it was not being investigated as an arson. Or told Barry the same thing he told Jim Allen on the night of the Oli's fire, that it was arson set in polyphone. And he talks about getting the results of the autopsy to determine whether the victims ingested polyfoam. He felt the materials that may have been given off by such things may have left particles of some material in victims' lungs or in their tracheas that could have been discovered during the autopsy. The question loomed. If Orr set the fire, why would he keep insisting that it was arson? Cabral would find an answer to that question in Orr's book, Points of Origin. When the arsonist Aaron Stiles is angry that the fire he set at Cal's Hardware was ruled accidental. Aaron wanted the Cal's fire to be called arson. He loved the inadvertent attention he derived from the newspaper's coverage and hated when he wasn't properly recognized. Aaron was so furious that he set a nearly identical fire two days later at another hardware store. And that was true, too. Orr told Barry about another hardware store fire that happened just two days after Oli's. He said there had been a number of other such fires in home improvement companies, specifically the Builders Emporium in North Hollywood. He said that the Oli's fire may have been set the same way. We were able to show that everything that was in the manuscript actually happened, so there wasn't any argument that this was anything but a true story. Orn never denied that he based the Cal's fire in his book on the Oli's fire. He could have gotten many of the details from fire and police reports, but not all of them. There is a little piece of evidence in his manuscript. As she rounded a corner, she almost ran into a man walking with his hands in his pockets. She heard his breath suck in, and he mumbled his apologies as he continued on, and she continued to the back of the store with Matthew. Aaron glanced back over his shoulder and breathed a sigh of relief as he saw the woman and the kid were walking away. I argued to the jury that he, in fact, came in contact with the grandma and her grandson at or near the time of the fire. Cabral called 66-year-old Billy Deal to the stand. Billy had lost his wife, Ada, and his grandson, Matthew, on the night of the fire. Now, Mr. Deal, prior to entering Oli's on that night, you had a discussion with your wife and Matthew about what you were going to do after leaving? Yes. As we were turning into the parking lot, Matthew saw the Baskin Robbins, and he wanted some goodies and we told him we'd get him an ice cream after we got out. In points of origin, Matthew and his grandmother go to Baskin-Robbins, too. She took him to the Baskin-Robbins ice cream store. And that's where Cabral saw that little piece of evidence, a detail in the book that couldn't have come from any report. While standing in the parking lot sharing a chocolate mint cone, she decided to entertain Matthew further by walking through cows. When we spoke to the grandfather, he indicated that the child's favorite ice cream was mint chip ice cream. 
That's a piece of information that John Orr would not have gotten from anybody else. Cabral argued that Orr must have overheard Ada and Matthew talking about mint chocolate chip ice cream before the Oli's fire started. And once I had him there and going inside the store, the rest of the evidence makes it pretty overwhelming that he's the arsonist. In all of the talk of fire science, of char patterns and smoke, of electrical grids and ventilation, it was easy for the jury to lose sight of what really mattered. In his closing statement, Cabral wanted to bring it all back to what the victims had endured. And the most brutal account of that happened to be in John Orr's book. Points of Origin by John L. Orr. Chapter six. The courtroom was silent. While standing in the parking lot sharing a chocolate mint cone, she decided to entertain Matthew further by walking through Cal's. In less than six minutes, both Matthew and Madeline would be dead. Minutes later, she heard a shrill whistling noise. She then heard excited talking in the word fire. The fire originating in polyurethane foam cushions raced to the ceiling, and within 45 seconds, 1,000 degree temperatures were being pushed through the annex door opening. When the fire door closed, the rest of the employees fled the main store to escape. There was no one to open the fire door now. The smoke crashed down on the heads of Madeline and Matthew. The smoke, choking and thick, was stealing their oxygen quickly and causing disorientation. She heard Matthew's sobs as well as her own. She now felt heat and saw flames in front of them. Hugging the floor, she felt herself losing her grip on Matthew and his grip almost loosened from her neck, and he slipped down her body as they crawled. The last thing she heard was a tremendous roar as the fire burned through the roof and vented to the outside. Their last breaths were of 800-degree heat that seared their throats closed. When Madeline's body was found, she was on her back with Matthew clinging to her ankles just 20 feet short of an open fire escape door. The people submit to you that chapter six of this book is the Oli's Fire. It describes the Oli's Fire in detail, even down to the ice cream store. The people submit that the evidence is clear, the evidence is incontrovertible, that on October 10th, 1984, the defendant, John Leonard Orr, entered Oli's home center, that he walked to the aisle where the polyurethane foam is stored, placed a device consisting of the cigarette, three matches, a rubber band, and a piece of yellow lined paper into that polyfoam. And after he exited that store, that device ignited a fire and took the lives of Jimmy Satina, Matthew Troidel, Ada Deal, and Carolyn Krauss. I ask you to return a verdict as to guilty on these four counts. Thank you. The jury deliberated for two weeks, and then the clerk entered the courtroom and reported that they had reached a verdict. In that moment, when you know you have a verdict, but you have no idea what it is, I think that there's probably no worse time for a prosecutor. And I'm certain that defendants suffer the same nausea, I guess I'd put. You're sitting there next to the client, John. There's a huge 
suspense, and it seems time moves so slowly. You're just sort of holding your breath. When you hear it, it it smacks you. We, the jury, in the above entitled case, find the defendant John Leonard Orr guilty of the crime of first degree murder in violation of Penal Code Section 187A, a felony is charged. The jury found John Orr guilty on all four murder charges and on all of the arson charges, except for one. As former fire captain John Orr walked in to be sentenced today, looking at his face, there was no clue to the madness that would cause him to set fires all over California. Judge Robert Perry sentenced him to four life terms in prison without the possibility of parole. Four concurrent life without parole terms are appropriate for counts one through four and they are now imposed. Hearing the sentence or seemed passive, but relatives of people killed in fires he set wanted the death penalty, an eye for an eye. He gets to see his grandson. He gets to just enjoy breathing and being alive. And that's more than our families are gonna be able to do. I had a hard time reconciling that the guy I'd sat with in his home was a convicted murderer. But John Orr went to prison and I got on with my life. It would be 20 years until I heard his voice again. But that's the funny thing about this story. No matter how many times I think my part in it is over, it keeps coming back. An inmate at the Mule Creek State Prison, Ione, California. This call and your telephone number will be monitored and recorded. Hey, John. Hey, how you doing there? We'll be taking a week off next week, but we will be back the week after with a new episode of Firebug. Firebug is a production of Truth Media in partnership with Sony Music Entertainment. It was created in association with Crime Story Media. This episode of Firebug was produced by Michelle Lance and W. Harry Fortuna, with help from Ryan Swikert and Neil Denatia. Ryan Swikert is our senior producer. Story editing by Mark Smerling. Carrie Antholis, that's me, is your host and executive producer. Kevin Shepard and Alessandro Santoro are associate producers. Our archive producer is Brennan Reese. Scott Curtis is our production manager. Fact-checking by Austin Thompson. Michael Blumenfeld did the mix. Sound design by Michael Blumenfeld and Michelle Lance. Music by Kenny Kusiak, John Kusiak, and Marmoset. Voice acting by Levi Petrie, Nicholas Gray, Nick Dietz, and Julie Rosansky. Our title track is Young Men Dead by Black Angels. Continue the conversation online by tweeting at Firebug Podcast. If you've enjoyed Firebug, don't forget to subscribe and leave us a review on iTunes. It really helps other people find the show. And thanks for listening.